Hello, good morning. Good morning from uh, the Euractive office uh, in Brussels. Uh, welcome uh, to this uh, online uh, conference uh, on the ground reporting. Uh, can it help uh, to combat uh, uh, Russia's disinformation war? Uh, our event is uh, supported by uh, MIF, uh, uh, the European Media and uh, Information Fund. Uh, my name is Georgi Gotov. I will be uh, your moderator uh, this morning. Uh, I'm senior editor at uh, Euractive and I'm also the publisher of uh, Euractive Bulgaria. I spent some of my time in my uh, country of origin, Bulgaria. And by the way, I see big differences between uh, Belgium and Bulgaria in the sense that uh, uh, society in Bulgaria uh, is much more vulnerable to uh, Russian propaganda for a variety of reasons. By the way, until recently, uh, most of Bulgarians could uh, watch uh, the first program of uh, Russian TV. Uh, and uh, uh, I have seen uh, Bulgarian politicians uh, basically uh, repeating uh, uh, the bullet points of the Russian uh, propaganda uh, in the next uh, minutes on other TV uh, channels. Uh, myself, uh, uh, I have some experience with uh, on-the-ground reporting uh, uh, from the time of the Yugoslav uh, wars, and uh, I, I know that it is true uh, what people say that at war uh, the first uh, victim is, is truth. And uh, uh, I think uh, there is a lot of uh, issues to be uh, discussed uh, uh, this morning. Uh, when I try to report uh, uh, on Ukraine from a distance, uh, the sentence that I most uh, frequently use is the battlefield reports could not be independently verified. And indeed, I mean, uh, uh, it's extremely difficult for journalists to make sense, for example, uh, regarding statistics, how many deaths there are on one side, how many on the other side, how many tanks uh, have been destroyed, how many uh, airplanes have been downed. Uh, on the ground reporting uh, these days uh, is possible if you are embedded, but when you are embedded, uh, you are also heavily exposed uh, to one narrative. In any case, uh, we'll, we'll discuss uh, these issues and more. Uh, with us uh, this morning are uh, Lutz uh, Gilner. Um, he is uh, head of uh, strategic communications uh, at the EU's uh, uh, European External Action Service. Uh, Ross Burley, uh, he is co-founder and executive director of the Center for Information Resilience. Uh, Yulia Bankova, she is editor-in-chief of the Ukrainian media LigaNet. Uh, Katarina Klingova, she is a senior research fellow at the Center for Democracy and Resilience uh, at the think tank uh, Globsec. Uh, Paolo Cesarini, uh, he's member of the management committee of the European uh, University Institute. Uh, uh, and also representing EMIF, uh, uh, the European uh, Media and Information Fund. Unfortunately, uh, MEP uh, Viola von Cramon uh, Taubadel uh, could not be with us this morning uh, due to 
important votes in the European Parliament. Uh, as you know, she is a member of the INGE Committee, the Special Committee on uh, Foreign Interference uh, in all democratic uh, processes in the EU, uh, including uh, disinformation. Uh, now, uh, our House rules. Uh, we will have initial uh, statements. Uh, those will be short, uh, two minutes each of the panelists. Uh, basically, in two minutes, uh, you, you can introduce yourself, uh, your organization. Uh, don't go very much uh, further because uh, uh, we hope to have a, a discussion, a lively discussion uh, uh, with our participants uh, online. And let me explain how this works. Uh, regarding uh, Q&A, uh, you can see uh, right now uh, on the screen uh, a QR code. And uh, uh, thanks to this QR code, uh, you can uh, uh, log uh, to ask uh, questions. And also, if you are logged uh, uh, from the Euractiv events page, you can go to Slido uh, on the right-hand side and ask your questions there. And I will read them on my laptop, uh, on my uh, tablet uh, uh, here. It works. <laughs> and uh, right. And uh, uh, let me start now with uh, with Lutz, uh, uh, head of strategic communications at uh, the European External Action Service. Uh, uh, can you please uh, introduce yourself, uh, perhaps uh, tell us very briefly what EES uh, is doing, uh, perhaps uh, East Stratcom Task Force? Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, over to you, Lutz. Thank you and good morning, Georgi and, and colleagues. I'm very happy to see uh, on this panel also good friends and, and close allies. Um, so I'm the head of the strategic communications team in the external action service and we have done a lot of work over the past five, six years on the issue of disinformation. And maybe for this debate, uh, I just want to make two comments, you know, to kick off this debate is we need to be very, very clear about what we are speaking about. Disinformation is a term that encompasses so many different phenomena from unintentional misinformation, from information confusion to something that my team is, uh, is particularly paying attention to. And that is what we call uh, foreign information manipulation. So disinformation used as a strategic tool in a coordinated manner with a very, very clear intention. So this is not a communication challenge. This is more a deliberate way of influencing, of interfering, interfering in the information space, in the information environment of another side. And that, of course, has huge impact for us in the European Union, in other parts of the world. And for the sake of brevity, um, I want to briefly kind of say what, what are the, the four areas actually that we are putting in the focus of our work. Um, number one is really to understand the issue. So situational awareness, what is happening? Uh, who is doing what? How does that impact also on our information space is I think a very important one. It sounds very technical, but it's still the starting point. Number two, and that is really the core of the discussion today is resilience. How can we make our societies 
but also our media systems resilient against these attempts, against these deliberate attempts. Number three, and I'm very happy to have uh, Paolo Cesarini uh, here also on the panel, because if I can say so, we were a little bit the avant-garde a couple of years ago to think about this, how we can do this, and that is how can we make uh, also important players, so the platforms in the digital space, more transparent, more accountable, and really work with them, but also have clear rules of the game for them in, in that uh, field. And number four, we are, of course, then the external service. So we look also at our foreign policy uh, instruments that we have. So for the issue that we have today, the core element is really resilience. How can we strengthen uh, the detection capability, the awareness, the trustworthiness, uh, the access also of independent, of quality journalism, and later in the debate, I would like to give you also a very concrete of course, example. We, in the Western we will, we will, we will come to, we will come to this. Uh, Ross Burley, uh, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, can you present uh, also your uh, organization, the Center for Information Resilience? Sure thing. Thanks, Georgi. Uh, great to be here. Uh, thanks very much for for having us. So yes, the Center for Information. Resilience is a UK-based non-profit. We're based in London, but we have staff and, and projects all around the world. Our pro biggest project is probably in Myanmar, but we also work extensively in Ukraine and work across across um, all continents trying to combat and counter disinformation. Um, just over a, a year ago, at the at the outset of the war, we teamed up with Bellingcat, the Syria Archive Group, um, uh, Amnesty, dozens of others to collate and archive and hash all of the content that was coming out of Ukraine. So on Telegram, on Twitter, on every different platform that you can possibly imagine, even, even Tinder. Uh, all of that archive data will form the heart of any future justice and accountability projects. And we've seen the first step towards that this just recently with the, with the ICC um, uh, warrant for, for President Putin. All of that work has evolved into the Eyes of Russia project, which we run at the center, uh, where we take that archive content and we investigate it, review it, verify it, and then map it so that journalists, policymakers, and colleagues um, and civil society actors have access to verified, truthful information that they can rely on in, in, in what is a sea of disinformation around the conflict. Um, I'll stop there, because I know you want to keep it short, but thanks again. Thank you, thank you, Ross. I understand you are in London, right? I think it's it's good that uh, all of us say uh, where we are. Uh, I assume Lutz is in Brussels, uh, just as, as as myself. Yes, uh, and uh, Julia, I think, is is in Kiev. Uh, but uh, the floor is yours, uh, Julia. Uh, over to you. I cannot hear Julia. Uh, Julia, you are muted. Can you unmute yourself? We cannot hear you, Julia. Uh, uh, I will ask Julia to unmute herself. In the meantime, I will give the floor to Katarina Klingova. Uh, Katarina, you are probably in Prague, I assume, but uh, you will tell us. Uh, over to you. Uh, thank you, Georgi. Thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to be here and share our knowledge. 
Um, good morning, everybody. My name is Katarina Klingova. I'm a senior research fellow at Globsec. Uh, Globsec is an international think tank. We're based in Bratislava, Slovakia, so we're really uh, neighboring, you know, uh, right next door to, to Ukraine. Um, I'm a senior research fellow at the Center for Democracy and Resilience. Uh, back in 2015, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, we really saw that from one day to another, certain disinformation actors' uh, websites started to peddle uh, pro-Kremlin propaganda and anti-EU, anti-NATO narratives in Slovakia, but also wider Central Europe. And that's why we started to monitor these activities. And in order to find how widespread these narratives are among the public opinion polls, we started to conduct our own uh, opinion polls to see the impact on the societies. Um, and uh, uh, we've been monitoring disinformation in connection with the war in Ukraine. At the end of uh, last year, we also established an office uh, in Kiev. So we have some fellows on the ground uh, that try to foster and find out what are the policies, what are the the things that uh, the member states or other international institutions should be providing to the Ukraine. So a brief introduction to what we do. Looking forward to the debate. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Katarina. And now uh, I know that Yulia has uh, solved uh, the microphone problem. Uh, uh, over to you, Yulia. Yes. Hello. Do you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Yes, I'm in Kiev now, and uh, actually we have air alert for maybe two hours. Um, so uh, um, it's still dangerous, I think, uh, all over Ukraine. Um, my name is Yulia Bankova, and I'm editor-in-chief of uh, leading Ukrainian business media. Uh, it was founded in 1997, and actually... Uh, all this time, we were focused on business, finance, and political stories and explanations, and was trying to be useful and uh, informative, first of all, to businesses. But uh, as you know, after 24th of February, all the Ukrainian journalists became war correspondents, first of all. So we worked from bomb shelters under missiles attack even now. Uh, some of my colleagues had to rescue their families from almost occupied villages, uh, and some of uh, them had to be very careful because their relatives remained in occupied territories even now. Uh, so this year were very difficult. Uh, some of us joined armed forces, um, but we faced with uh, many new challenges um, when martial law, uh, which martial law brought us. Uh, so now we are uh, learning how to work and keeping quality uh, and to be independent journalists in this reality. I have to say that Ukrainians, Ukrainian journalists began to fight, be, uh, began to fight uh, disinformation uh, long before the full-scale invasion. Uh, so we had a lot of fact-checking projects uh, in Ukraine aimed to uh, specifically uh, uh, debunk this Russian propaganda. And I think that maybe... And not every, but almost uh, every media had some project uh, uh, connected with uh, Russian myths uh, or propaganda. Uh, so I think that we do, we are doing very good in that. And I can confirm that Russian propaganda um, and disinformation uh, became much lower um, this year. Uh, so we are ready to share this uh, experience with um, with. Other, uh, other colleagues abroad. So I, I think um, it is, it, this discussion is uh, very useful. Thank you all. 
for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Julia. Very interesting. Uh, and uh, now, last but not least, uh, Paolo Cesarini. Uh, over to you, Paolo. Uh, where are you? In Rome, maybe? No, actually, I'm in Brussels. Uh, good ah, morning, in, uh, Georg. Yes. And uh, nice to be here with you and to see also uh, uh, faces of good old friends. Uh, hi, Lutz. Uh, and um, so I am Paolo Cesarini, I am in the management board of the European Media and Information Fund, EMIF, which is a philanthropic fund that uh, basically funds projects uh, in four different areas, uh, fact-checking, uh, journalistic investigations, research around disinformation, but also sandboxes uh, for a more resilient media ecosystem and of course uh, uh, media literacy we have been in operation for around uh, one year and a half uh, and we have already around 40 projects uh, 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 on our uh, portfolio that are up and running pleased to see that out of this uh, number there are around 10 projects that are focused on ukraine and the war in ukraine these are mainly uh, fact checking uh, projects and uh, their focus is about uh, uh, first of all building capacity for instance by integrating fact checking into the newsroom of the Ukrainian news agency uh, or about resilience of uh, um, building resilience of uh, local media through uh, you know by supporting voices of local outlets and by creating networks that can help achieving uh, uh, a higher level of resilience and of course a number of projects uh, uh, designed to uh, uh, raise public awareness around the facts surrounding uh, the conflict with the uh, topic specific or geographic specific focus we also have, uh, interestingly, larger projects on sandboxes and research that look at how to integrate, particularly in the Central and uh, Eastern Europe, uh, uh, checking activities into a more organic business model for, uh, for, uh, for media. Um, happy to go through uh, the issues that of this debate uh, now in the discussion phase, I will simply uh, flash out uh, uh, this, uh, for, for this introductory statement uh, two challenges that we are facing and we are all facing. Uh, the first is how to strengthen the uh, media and information activities in such a fragile uh, contest. And second, how to uh, ensure, how to enable uh, that professional media reach the intended audience uh, in uh, in such a context. Uh, I conclude with just one uh, example. Uh, the um, Media and Development Foundation in Ukraine has recently published a study that shows how 46% uh, of uh, independent local news publishers are now restricted in a way or another on Facebook. And that is... Uh, uh, affecting their monetization, of course, uh, and it is, seems to be due to the use of certain words like Azov Batayon or Moskali or Orki that are perceived as being words uh, reflecting hate uh, and therefore the, uh, entailing a triggering uh, automatic mechanism of uh, uh, 
downgrading the visibility of this uh, professional media. This is also a problem that often we do not talk about it, but uh, should be addressed. But there are many, many issues I'm happy to discuss during uh, our conversation. Very interesting. Uh, I, I was myself uh, for a brief uh, moment restricted because I said uh, Bulgaria will beat England. That was about football. But uh, it was taught as hate speech and uh, yeah, I was punished for, for saying so. Uh, uh, but uh, now let's start the real, the real discussion. And uh, I think that uh, we, we, we should start uh, with uh, Yulia. And uh, the reason is that, uh, uh, as she explained, uh, Ukraine has a tremendous uh, experience, unfortunately, uh, uh, countering uh, Russian disinformation. As she said, uh, this started uh, long before uh, uh, 24 February last year. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the resilience, we can learn uh, in European countries from, from the resilience that uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, media have uh, developed uh, in, in, in that field. Uh, also, I was... Uh, uh, I was pleased uh, to, to learn that, uh, from her uh, that thanks to this uh, resilience, uh, the Russian propaganda uh, appears to be uh, much lower uh, these days. Uh, I would like uh, uh, Yulia to, uh, to tell us about uh, uh, the experience of uh, LigaNet, uh, perhaps the experience of uh, other uh, media in Ukraine. Uh, also, uh, tell us uh, what kind of support uh, uh, she, she would like uh, to receive uh, from our side, perhaps also uh, uh, suggesting uh, uh, what kind of cooperations uh, uh, would be useful uh, with media uh, from, from across uh, uh, Europe in the context of uh, combating uh, Russia's uh, disinformation war. Uh, uh, now, uh, I'm more generous uh, with, uh, with your time. I mean, Yulia, uh, uh, I will interrupt you if, if I feel that uh, it is too long, but uh, I will not set up uh, any, any time frame. Uh, I am just uh, giving, uh, giving you the floor. Over to you. Thank you. Um, I don't know uh, what start should be, I think that uh, really cooperation between, and, and that's my aim as uh, editor-in-chief now, I'm trying to uh, to establish some uh, connection with European media. And we have an idea, for example, for, 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 um, for, example, for uh, content exchange. I think it's, it's very important. Uh, but uh, I'd like to start with, with some uh, uh, our experience. Maybe we had a lot of project uh, about the information and uh, I think that um, for Ukraine, um, uh, as I said before, uh, there were many fact-checking projects. Uh, and uh, most of this work was done by journalists, especially investiga investigative journalists. Um, so, uh, but now the role of journalists is to collect and publish facts. So we, we see that. Unfortunately, uh, Ukraine, it was too late when, when Ukraine um, uh, banned this pro-Russian media. We had a lot of Russian propaganda in Ukraine uh, many years. 
um, until the autumn of last year. Um, but uh, they spread these Russian narratives and propaganda and divided people to many pieces. Um, so when the, this full-scale invasion became uh, obvious, unfortunately, it was too late on February 11, I guess, the National Security and Defense Council imposed sanctions against uh, the main pro-Kremlin uh, TV channels. And it was a really um, great decision. And after that, uh, after that, we feel that, that uh, people's, uh, the, the, the people stop uh, talking about that uh, pro-Russian narratives. Um, so in our media, we had many, uh, many different projects. Uh, we discovered uh, pro-Russian telegram channels, for example, and tell people uh, what connection they are. After that, um, authorities decided to, to, to ban some, some of them. We, we told about that. Uh, but we faced with uh, also with challenges of banning our media because, uh, as Paul said, uh, the Facebook and social media became a huge problem when uh, when we started covering this this uh, war. Uh, for example, uh, our post uh, there were not uh, ha any hate speech, uh, any Moscali or, or something like that uh, towards Russians in the post of independent big independent media. Uh, but uh, we were banned uh, uh, even for uh, some real some real photos from from uh, from Bucha or Irpin or or from Kiev. So uh, Facebook recognized this as uh, as uh, violence and it uh, just blocked our post. Um, we also couldn't uh, promote uh, some of our articles on social media because uh, when you uh, mention war or uh, Russian, uh, Russian war against Ukraine, or, or some atrocities, Russian atrocities. So uh, Facebook also recognized it uh, as violence, and you couldn't uh, uh, promote your article on Facebook or on Instagram. And I think that um, we had a lot of administrative work, uh, many letters to... Uh, to Facebook that we are independent media, we prove it, and and please uh, uh, back us uh, to our page. The same problem had other media with TikTok, for example. I know that uh, really great Ukrainian media was page their page was deleted from TikTok, and they started from beginning uh, after millions and millions views on TikTok. So it's a hard uh, daily work. But I think that our authorities established some some connections and regular meetings with uh, um, with people who work uh, in big corporations, and uh, we achieved some uh, some result. And now, maybe in a few months after the full scale invasion started, they stopped block us and they just covered this photo, and um, uh, you 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 can. Uh, press the bottom. I, I would like. I, I wish to to see this photo. They just uh, tell you that uh, you you can see uh, some violence on that photo, and it's uh, it's it's um, it's it's great. Uh, so I think that it's very important to cooperate with Ukrainian for, for um, foreign journalists uh, and media to cooperate with Ukrainian uh, with Ukrainian journalists. Why? Uh, first of all, it's uh, understanding of context. Uh, I think this is one of the most important points uh, because, unfortunately, until now, Ukraine is still uh, uh, pursued uh, abroad as part of Soviet 
space, part of Russia, the same language, some com- uh, culture, but it's it's not the same, definitely. And to understand this context, uh, you need to communicate uh, with Ukrainian journalists, I guess. Um, so uh, the understanding of danger, uh, it's also very important because uh, from my experience, I, I see and from my colleagues who work on the ground a lot and frontline, uh, they confirmed that uh, many uh, foreign journalists who came to Ukraine and uh, who uh, worked at a lot of m- many other war, covered many other wars, they underestimate the danger. So at least more than 35, I guess, journalists were killed um, uh, since February 24th. And uh, um, unfortunately, um, and maybe luckily, we, we, we already can estimate this danger. Um, and uh, so we would like to cooperate more uh, with foreign media. Uh, we are open to ch- content uh, exchange. Uh, in our media, we launched the uh, English uh, version um, of our website, and I know that many, uh, many, many Ukrainian media also did it uh, after the 24th of February. It's easier now to read uh, about Ukraine from Ukrainian media, but not from 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 those who who were sitting in uh, Russia for, for for many years. I, for example, I, I can give an example when. Um, last year, a few uh, world-leading media launched their local offices in Ukraine. They hired um, uh, they hired uh, editors uh, from from Russia to, uh, to 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 be the main person for this Ukrainian local. So, um, uh, I think it's it's maybe uh, not the best decision. Uh, because uh, people worked for for uh, covered Russia's for many years, and now they will uh, they, they they will have this uh, Moscow perspective in Ukraine, and maybe it's better to to hire someone uh, and who who will start from very beginning to learn Ukraine. So we Julia, are open to yeah. Very 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 interesting. Uh, uh, I'm I'm shortly interrupting you uh, with a question, uh, by the way, uh, because. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned, for example, uh, banning the channels, the Russian propaganda channels, uh, uh, which you said uh, was a great decision and uh, um, people stopped uh, churning the Russian narratives immediately after that. Uh, and, I, and I agree uh, with you that uh, it was a great decision across the EU uh, to ban uh, such channels. But uh, I also find many colleagues uh, here in Europe and in my country of uh, origin, who say, no, this is censorship. Uh, I would like uh, to hear your take on this. Uh, yes, we also had such kind of discussions, but um, but we also had proofs that money for this uh, channel, for, for, for uh, operating these channels, uh, were not clear. So uh, it was a cash from Russia. Um, without any taxi- taxes, and it was it was not just we will ban you uh, only for for those you you are talking about, but it was a reasonable decision based on facts that people work for uh, for for Russian money without paying taxes. So mm-hmm. that's the story. Yeah, thank you, so thank us, you very it's much. Not, it's not it's it's not a censorship because. 
they have uh, they they can uh, continue in uh, on their Facebook or on their YouTube, uh, but to have a big offices in the center of the Kiev and to invite with with uh, with, with huge. Uh, Part with huge editorial team and pay them uh, very high salaries uh, and uh, share these Russian narratives. So uh, even journalists started to to discover and investigate where this money came from, and we uh, understood that it was uh, Russian money without paying taxes and from Russian politicians. Uh, also, uh, a very brief question. I uh, I didn't hear well how many journalists uh, were killed in, in Ukraine since the start of the war. And perhaps if you can also tell us how many journalists uh, from uh, your media uh, uh, fought uh, as, as soldiers uh, uh, at the front. Well, I have uh, the latest statistic. I have uh, it from last year. 33 journalists were, has been killed. It's not uh, only journalists who worked as a journalist in, in the war, but it's also uh, journalists who joined our forces. Um, so it, they they also were killed. And uh, but thirty three, at least thirty three, I think that it's, this this number is uh, more now, um, higher now. Uh, from our team, we have four person joined our forces for now. And this week, uh, the, the force was uh, mobilized. Thank you. Thank you. Um, can I now uh, uh, turn uh, to Katarina uh, Klingova uh, to tell us uh, about uh, uh, Globsec? Uh, uh, Katarina, you mentioned uh, those uh, opinion polls. Uh, I think uh, they are very uh, useful to, um, to assess uh, the situation. Maybe if you can take it uh, from, from there. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Georgi. So um, we've been conducting uh, annual public opinion polls since 2016. The latest one uh, uh, was actually published last year, and we were able to gather the data uh, at the beginning of the war. So the data was collected at the end of March, beginning of April in uh, Central European countries from, you know, Baltic three, V4 countries, Bulgaria, Romania. And uh, w one thing that we really saw was that um, uh, with the war, with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, finally, majority of Central Eastern Europeans started to perceive Russia as a security threat. But there were um, countries as Slovakia, Hungary, but also Romania, Bulgaria, that in many of the questions that we asked uh, appeared to be regional outliers. So um, despite of the fact that, uh, uh, that the war was basically happening next door to Bulgaria, still majority of Bulgarians do not perceive Russia as the uh, security threat or Hungarians didn't perceive um, uh, Russia as the security threat for their country. Um, overall, uh, our public opinion polls show that you know, the years of um, information operations uh, that are happening uh, in those respective countries. Uh, the years where you had own domestic political parties, you know, political actors spreading pro Kremlin propaganda, something that you mentioned, you know, in the beginning of this debate, uh, do not disappear. 
do not disappear with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And uh, resilience building really takes time. And resilience building is something that, um, you know, it cannot be the responsibility of media or journalists, but it needs to be whole of society, whole of government approach. Uh, which you conduct with the with the sense that it will take time and that you will need to de- dedicate uh, significant financial but also personal resources uh, to do that to achieve it. Um, one thing that we found out also uh, within our public opinion polls is that in many uh, Central Eastern European countries, uh, there is and there will be a significant part of population. You know, it. it it, it's from one third to uh, uh, one uh, fifth of the population, depending on the country, that will believe and that believes Kremlin propaganda, and uh, it's connected to that, you know, long-term information operations, but also it it has a lot of historical, cultural um, uh, drivers that have been there that have been there for ages, and that the the Kremlin itself, but also for Kremlin domestic actors have been actively utilizing. So uh, I think one important thing that needs to be realized by uh, public uh, institutions, public representatives um, in the European Union, in you know uh, countries beyond Russia and Ukraine is that there is um, a, a parallel um, battlefield that is being fought uh, um, in, you know, uh, to the one that is being fought in Ukraine. And that's the one that is uh, in our information space. Uh, it is important to uh, realize that, yes, we need to be united in our support for Ukraine, uh, um, you know, supporting them uh, in defending their country, be united in, in sending them humanitarian and military help. But uh, there are a lot of domestic issues that are being actively utilized by various uh, domestic political actors, domestic pro-Kremlin actors uh, that are igniting polarizations, uh, that are being utilized in order to uh, uh, you know, foster hate against uh, or negative perceptions against Ukrainian refugees uh, that are equally important to uh, debunk uh, and uh, address uh, as are the you know traditional narratives connected with the war in Ukraine that are being spread by the Kremlin propaganda. Uh, Katarina, um, uh, can I yes. can I ask you uh, to uh, uh, you know going a little bit closer to to the title of, of our conference? Uh, you mentioned the battlefield in our info uh, space. Uh, you mentioned the reasons why. Uh, some people are vulnerable to Russian propaganda, but uh, we have professional journalists going on the ground uh, in, in uh, Ukraine uh, to report. Uh, the exposure of this reporting, uh, uh, the exposure uh, of the audience uh, to this professional on the ground reporting, it probably makes a difference. Uh, uh, is there a way to, to measure it? Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, those uh, uh, those opinion polls. Maybe uh, uh, after a certain period of time, you, you can see that the opinion is, is is shifting. And one of the reasons is precisely uh, this uh, professional on the ground uh, r- reporting. Uh, what do you think? 
Um, the professional on the ground reporting is very, very important. But uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, there have been the uh, decrease in the trust of any kind of institutions, including the the media, for for years. You know, it has been here for years. And then you have uh, various political actors, various pro-Kremlin domestic uh, actors that have been uh, spreading actually conspiracy theories about journalists, about media uh, themselves, uh, saying that they're the foreign agents, that they're you know serving uh, or spreading particular propaganda. Uh, that they themselves are undermining the democratic processes by the way they eventually report on things, whether it's uh, domestic issues or whether it's uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, then you need to realize that um, the the media uh, have been, or investigative journalists, have been targets of smear attacks from uh, political actors. They have been persuaded. Uh, they some of them, you know, have been killed for their actions. Uh, just a few years ago, a few weeks ago, we had a fifth anniversary of uh, investigative journalist Jan Kuciak uh, and his fiance being shot dead in Slovakia because of his work. So um, it goes back to the political culture, but it, it goes back to intensive smear campaigns that have been waged against the, the journalists themselves. Uh, and another factor is something that Powell mentioned. Uh, when we look uh, in our monitoring, is when we compare what kind of um, messages, narratives resonate in connections to the uh, war in Ukraine, in connections to the uh, refugees. It is the disinformation narratives. It is the negative messaging uh, that is actually getting more traction on social media. Uh, it is the pro-Kremlin uh, fire extremists in Central and Eastern Europe uh, that are... Um, you know whose videos are getting more viral. So creating the uh, the network is important, and fostering you know the the local messages of Ukrainians in our information sphere uh, um, is is very important. But at the same time, we need to clean up, uh, and we need to create um, you know um, opportunities for those messages. Uh, that will actually support the truth and support the uh, verified, uh, fact-checked uh, information to be to become viral in our information spheres. Um, it's about the algorithms. It's about the sponsored content. It's about uh, something that Yulia mentioned. You know, you have not only um, you know mainstream media investigative journalists being taken down by social media platforms. But in case of Slovakia, it several times happened that it was the police, you know, the, the account of uh, the Facebook account of Slovak uh, police was taken down because they were pointing out uh, Russian information operation in Slovakia. And this is all based on AI that doesn't understand the uh, you know, the, the domestic information scenes, doesn't understand the nuances. And uh, this is something that needs to be changed. In Slovakia, for example, we have one Facebook fact checker covering 3.5 million, you know, market of Facebook users. Uh, and then we have over uh, 1,800 disinformation Facebook pages and open uh, groups that spread conspiracy theories. You know, it's uncomparable. Uh, so uh, we need more actions when it comes to social media platforms. We need more transparency. We need uh, algorithms to be actually uh, pushing forward um, the truth 
not polarizing uh, narratives uh, that are getting the tractions, of course, because they're clickbaity. Uh, we need to uh, demonetize disinformation and we need to support investigative journalism sense that, you know, it's, it's free. Uh, investigative journalism is not, it's, it's, it's expensive and most of the good content is behind the paywall. And disinformation outlets, RT, Sputnik, I mean, one of the things that they're utilized is that their content is free. And in, in um, regions as Western Balkans, we see a lot of local uh, outlets taking uh, the content from these uh, pro-Kremlin media machinery because it's for free. And that, you know, it's just amplifying those messages further and further. Yeah, indeed. And uh, also, uh, the language doesn't seem to be a problem in, in, in some countries. Uh, they take it from Russian easily. Uh, I, I would like to invite uh, uh, Ross Burley uh, to jump in uh, on the same, uh, you know, issues uh, from his uh, earlier uh, short uh, presentation. Um, I heard about uh, their experience uh, working uh, uh, with uh, such investigative websites such as Bellingcat, uh, um, I think uh, some experience, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, cutting edge experience with uh, um, algorithms uh, to, to study social media, uh, perhaps artificial intelligence. I mean, uh, uh, what is our ally in 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 the in the kind of work we are doing uh, to? Uh, to do our job uh, as journalists in a honest way and, and not to be overwhelmed by uh, Russian propaganda? Thanks, Georgi. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, look, I mean, I think the first answer is is each other. Um, we're only going to kind of get through this and, and try and beat back a, a win on the battlefield of uh, the information space, as Katarina so brilliantly put it, um, if, if we're all working as one, as policymakers, as journalists, as civil society actors, as open source community. And actually, you know, back in you know, a year ago, that was one of the beautiful things that happened in the midst of all of the evil and, and, uh, and, and aggression was uh, a sense of everybody coming together. The open source community and the human rights community certainly came together because we knew we were up against the clock to put together a framework which meant that we could capture all of the content that was coming uh, awash uh, in, in coming out of Ukraine and put it into a framework which was uh, applicable to Berkeley protocols, which was be able to be used by accountability bodies for future prosecutions. So now there is a bank of over 20,000, uh, a database of 20,000 entries, um, each of which has been stored and archived and hashed, which investigators can now go through and uh, investigate and verify. And I think um, what was super interesting at the start of the conflict, and this goes back to kind of the original question of the piece, which is about, you know, reporting from the ground. So do you, do you guys remember when there was a sort of, uh, you know, Russia was trying to concoct various different um, narratives around trying to get into, into you know, being um, uh, attacked themselves and they staged attacks in the Donbass. And, it was really quite it was really rubbish like you know they would they would say that a car would have been blown up and they would blow up a car and there would be patrick lancaster excitedly with his camera filming everything and then of course what they don't realize is that you know we as open source investigators we can take that 
that video, we can take a still image from the video and we can quite clearly see that the body inside of the car is a cadaver because it's quite grim and it's quite gruesome, but cadavers have very round bits of their skull taken off, right? Uh, explosions don't cause that. Um, so we're then able to very quickly work with civil society and journalists and policymakers to say, hey, this has clearly been staged and look, it's quite interesting who is spreading these narratives and spreading this disinformation. Um, it's, it's, you know, useful idiots like Patrick who are on the ground uh, reporting. Um, and it all kind of feeds into a wider ecosystem. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on is about this ecosystem. And again, Katarina um, uh, raised some really, really interesting points about RT and, and, and such like. The challenge that we have at the moment is a couple of things. One, uh, this idea of kind of Ukraine fatigue, conflict fatigue, which we've seen in every single conflict um, going back since, you know, you know the 1990, uh, 1991 Gulf War, when everything was kind of televised, but people, audiences do do get conflict um, um, fatigue. It's a, it's a well-known documented study, uh, um, a phenomenon. Um, so how do we try and combat that. So one of the things that the other side of doing, and you can get insights from what the other side of doing, is by varying the types of content that they're putting out. Um, so if you look at RT at the moment, and a good example would be RT Arabic, right? If you were to click on RT Arabic at the moment, um, there's very little about Ukraine. Yeah, it's mentioned, but a lot of it is about cat videos that have gone viral, and basically anything to bring audiences to their page to make them click the follow button, which means that they do start ramping up again and start um, spreading uh, narratives that they want the audiences to see. The audience is already engaged and and there. And I think we need to be a little bit smarter about how we present con information to audiences who have been divided and have been targeted by disinformation for about 20 years now about, and and as Katarina said, who are um, have been targeted by uh, policy, certain policymakers and certain, shall we say, uh, tech uh, personalities to distrust media, to distrust journalists. And so we've kind of, we are in this uh, dichotomy at the moment of we need to create more engaging content to compete with the disinformation. But at the same time, we need to improve and verify and engage with audiences with factually correct information um, you know, that, as Katarina says, is is expensive and, and difficult to do on a sort of large scale. Uh, I think, uh, Ross, you are familiar with this uh, uh, Russian narrative. Uh, when uh, a Western journalist, uh, like uh, uh, my colleagues in Bellingcat, are using uh, really uh, cutting-edge open-source techniques uh, to identify uh, uh, you, you gave a very good example with uh, falsification of, uh, of a bomb attack. Or uh, 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 When they use such techniques, uh, they are accused of uh, being journalists in disguise and basically representing uh, MI6 or CIA. Or uh, 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 you, you must be familiar with this kind of narrative. Uh, what is your take? <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Um, I mean, it's a big shout out to my friends from the Grey Zone who um, who are very fond of, uh, of of spreading that kind of uh, garbage. Uh, and look, obviously they do it because um, a it's clickbaity and 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 b um, it's easy to then they try and distort the very 
good work and 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 relevant work and important work that Bellingcat and CIR and others do. Um, the fact is, as as and I don't want to talk for Bellingcat, they're a separate organisation, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak for us. As CIR, when we do a report, whatever it is, when we do our Eyes and Russia map or uh, any report we do, we have methodology, as I'm sure the guys from Globsec do and all of our other civil society partners. It's just good standard research practice. You publish your methodology. And it's no secret that open source is not complicated. Like, it's not alchemy. It's it's just being methodical. And a lot of it is like looking for a, a needle in a haystack. And it takes a long time. Um, and there is no, uh, there's a lot of snake oil, sort of snail salesmen in the business who promise you these glorious AI tools that are going to transform the counter disinformation space, are going to make everything brilliant. It's all rubbish. What, what makes things uh, uh, what makes things um, hard for the other side is verified information, which is difficult to get because it takes a long time to do it properly to the sort of level that you need to do it. Now, when we did, I'll give you another example. We worked with um, with the guys from CNN on a, uh, a general that the Russians were using who was infamous for using sort of carpet bombing techniques in Aleppo and really targeting civilian infrastructure as a as a tactic on the battlefield. Uh, and we were using several examples from Ukraine and cross-referencing them with the tactics used in Aleppo. And we're basically, you know, sort of saying, look, this is a clear pattern of evidence of uh, civil civilian infrastructure being deliberately targeted, which of course is a war crime. Now, that's one story and one video which studio CNN released uh, that one story, I think, took a bunch of investigators four months. So that's the challenge that we're up against. And we had to do, yeah. you know, it takes that time because, you know, as I say, this stuff can go to the International Criminal Court one day. And so it needs to be absolutely watertight. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ross. Uh, uh, over to you, uh, Paolo. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I... I'm very uh, supportive uh, as a journalist of uh, those who help media to become resilient uh, these days and uh, to acquire tools uh, to uh, find, fight disinformation. But uh, uh, I think uh, this is a, a very booming kind of uh, activity where new techniques uh, are, are uh, also uh, discovered, uh, like uh, artificial intelligence, uh, for, for example. Uh, are there such projects? Uh, uh, is there s uh, some sort of hope that uh, uh, there will be some sort of automatic uh, tools uh, where, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, media will have a label like uh, this content has been checked perhaps with artificial intelligence, and it's okay. And others, of course, will not have that, that label. Uh, what, what is your take? Mm, yes, uh, thank you for this question. And uh, uh, I believe that we need to put together a mix of uh, uh, tools. Um, let me put this uh, statement a bit in the context. Uh, it is clear, and everybody in this panel has uh, uh, reminded us uh, that the Ukraine war, it is not only 
about uh, uh, it's not only carried out through shelling and shooting it is also an information war and is extremely sophisticated uh, fact checking activities have enabled us uh, to uh, gather an important corpus of evidence of various uh, actions of, uh, taken by the Kremlin to distort uh, the information influence public opinion. Now, these activities have been relying very much on uh, fact-checking, and fact-checking is not an easy uh, task. Um, it requires, in certain cases, uh, the presence on the ground. So I'll go back to the original theme of this debate. On-the-ground reporting is important because not all fact-checking activities can be carried out remotely. Uh, I'll give you the example. I mean, the uh, uh, mass murder in Bucha and in other uh, cities like Izum, Kupchanisk, have been uh, the uh, events that the Kremlin always denied by alleging that they were staged uh, uh, by, the, by the Ukrainians uh, could be debunked only through the eyes witnessing by the presence of uh, journalist teams on the spot. So the, uh, uh, this is a costly uh, activity, requires funding. So the first challenge here, it is about uh, the channeling funding to uh, fact-checking activities that are the most needed in order to establish the facts as they unfold. There is also another uh, uh, issue here, and it's an issue of trust in news. Um, you remember, all of you will uh, remember certainly that the first Gulf War has been the first to bring the war, the conflict, the scenes of the conflict into everybody's homes through a, a 24 hours coverage by TVs like CNN. Now, the Ukrainian war, uh, it seems to me, as the first conflict that has brought under everybody's eyes the atrocities of the conflict via social media. This has enabled, let's say, uh, the production of a vast amount of images, videos, commentaries that have been channeled uh, by uh, ordinary peoples, but also by Russian trolls, very much so, especially in certain channels like uh, TikTok or Telegram, and have competed out uh, uh, professional, serious, on-the-ground reporting. And that has, uh, has created confusion, has increased the pain and the panic across uh, Ukrainian population, especially during the first days, the first weeks of the war, where people didn't know uh, which, what to believe. Uh, so trust in news, it is, in, uh, it is a vital role that on-the-ground reporting has to fulfill. And that requires, again, uh, not only money, but also coordination. I think that is where the concept of networks of media outlet comes into play. Uh, the, the support, uh, it is not only about providing weaponry, it is also about, by the West, I mean, it is also about providing uh, uh, means and tools for uh, media outlets to continue to do their work on the ground. And thirdly, there is the issue, as you mentioned, Gergi, of technologies. Uh, certainly, technologies is, uh, are important, AI can help, 
Ross was rightly pointing the finger to the fact that this is not a silver bullet, it's not a magic wand that would solve all the problems, and I believe so. Uh, humans need to stay always in the loop of whatever AI system you use, but certainly forensic analysis of images and semantic analysis for text that can help, and I think investment in this area are uh, important. But I would insist very much on the notion of the working together of creating networks. By the way, uh, not long ago in an article on The Guardian, uh, Vice President Jurova has recalled, uh, has launched an idea that, like uh, uh, Free Russia uh, Radio. Uh, uh, meaning not, of course, creating a new radio, but uh, to put together resource, existing resources from existing outlets in order to provide different voices to Russian audiences. Let's not forget, and I conclude, that uh, 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 Kremlin uh, propaganda uh, aims at three main objectives. One it is to increase the panic and the pain across the uh, Ukraine uh, populations. The second is to sow division in the West, in, across EU and NATO member states, through narratives that, you know, uh, uh, make people believe that the sanctions are not working, that uh, Zelensky is a pro-Nazi ideologist, uh, or that uh, the Ukrainian refugees are rapists, right? And, uh, and, but the third one, it is about building consensus domestically, and that it is perhaps what she talked about Uh, Paolo, I think I think you muted yourself, or, uh, but uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, I, I would like uh, uh, to continue in the same vein uh, with uh, uh, Lutz. Uh, uh, Paolo uh, mentioned uh, uh, this initiative of uh, Vice President Jurova, uh, uh, a radio reminding of uh, what used to be Radio Free Europe uh, before during the Cold War and. I'm old enough uh, to, to, to remember uh, that, uh, that radio station. Uh, he also mentioned that uh, uh, the activities uh, we are um, kind of uh, trying to, uh, to imagine are, are, are costly, uh, are costly. Uh, can you perhaps uh, start by, by telling us, uh, is, is the uh, European Commission, the European External Action Service, uh, equipped, uh, including with the necessary funds to conduct uh, such, such activities, or shall we wait for the next EU budget? <laughs> That's a, a very good question, but uh, Georgi, um, I think the answer is, is pretty clear. Um, we are not equipped in the sense of having kind of the big pot of money that we can pour out at the occasion that arises. And maybe that's even good. I mean, not that we have the money, but uh, there is a very, very important question. Uh, and that is, of course, who will get this money? With which methodology? What is the aim? Why are we supporting certain and not others? And there are many, many of these questions that a government or government type organization like the European institutions, of course, need to need to answer. Um, but uh, I, I will come back to this point, but I just wanted to take up two or three very, very important ideas that came up um, from the previous speakers. Number one, I think Ross mentioned this, it is so important to have a common understanding of what the problem is. I think you mentioned a methodology um, and exactly what, what you are doing, Ross and, and Elliot um, in, uh, in Bellingcat and many of you also here, is maybe one of the key 
two uh, key answers, you know, how to approach this issue of information manipulation and disinformation. I'm a little bit concerned about the debate about having good narratives and bad narratives. So a sort of binary uh, element uh, on content, because that is neither, uh, I think, appropriate for governments to make this distinction, what is good, what is bad, what can be said, what cannot be said, nor for social media platforms, nor for anybody else, I think, to, to determine this. It is really a much more complicated issue of opinions that should be tolerated also in a in a free society but where we can draw the line and that is really my point is about manipulative techniques that are used manipulation uh, it's very hard to to show the intent but there are ways to identify why people uh, or how people are using specific techniques or tactics or procedures, you know, to um, to manipulate the information, and that can be at the level of the content, can be the the content itself, can be supporting documents. Uh, you have all seen in your Twitter feed this morning, I guess, uh, about AI generated pictures of the uh, alleged arrest of Donald Trump, for example. So this manipulation gets easier and easier every day, every day also because of. Um, of uh, technological advance, but the manipulation can also be at the level of identities, so that we have networks, that we have amplification networks of people that don't really exist. I mean, there can be troll farms, that can be highly sophisticated networks on social media, but not only on social media, also so-called information portals that have been created in the uh, in the digital sphere that. Uh, do as if there were information portals, but they are not. Some of them are even directly related to the Russian security services. And the third level of manipulation that we need to look at is the manipulation of reach, amplification techniques that are simply illegitimate and that have one aim, and Ross, uh, Ross illustrated it a little bit with the RT approaches, and that is to get as many audience or uh, an as large audience as possible and then to switch back into its own either political or propaganda settings so my point is really we need to look at at the actions at the behavior of these uh, of these actors um of course in combination with the content we cannot leave the content alone but uh, it is important to look at these two things together to determine what is legitimate and what is illegitimate. The Peace Nobel Prize winner uh, that you all know, Maria Ressa, and I think uh, a very, very sharp mind in this field, she has described this very, very nicely um, when she said, be careful of looking only at the content. The content is the most important. It's like the bullet. It's the projectile. That is what causes the the, the problem, the damage, you know, this is what we see. But still, there is a weapon behind. There is an arm, you know, that fires that bullet. And we need to expose that. So for me, this is maybe uh, the one most important element. The second uh, important element, I want to come back to what I think all of you have said um, about networking, about bringing together, building the alliance, let's say, of... Um, actors uh, that have uh, a benign intent there, uh, that have the intent um, of, an, of an enlightened, uh, let's say, uh, activity there, 
either by fact checkers, by organizations like the CIR, like organizations uh, that go more on uh, uh, on plurality, for example. So this networking, I think the, if I can use the adversaries, you know, have done this very well. There are extremely well-connected networks of disinformation actors. We call it the disinformation ecosystem. And we need to, we need to do the same on the on the other side. And there, I don't want to take out our responsibility as a as a government actor, uh, but I think it would be wrong to say, oh, please, European Commission or External Action Service, start this activity, put out good messages, put out a lot of information, and that will solve the problem. The I think the the answer to that is a little bit more complicated, but it will always be in networking. One thing that we have done, just to illustrate also a little bit what I'm saying here. We have uh, a couple of weeks ago in Sarajevo, we brought together a lot of different media professionals, so journalists, bloggers, uh, others that are that are active in the in the media scene from the Western Balkans, from Ukraine, from the European Union, from even uh, related to to other language areas, uh, whatever, even Chinese speaking uh, media. To bring them together to discuss this issue, to connect themselves, to share their experience, to know what resources are out there. And I think this is one of the key elements. And to answer your, your question, Jorge, that is exactly where I think we should invest our money. What Vice President Jurova has in mind is not to create a new single center, you know, that will send the good news to the world but more of a networked approach. How can we support these, also the media professionals that actually fled Russia and that have a problem in surviving, at least professionally, how can we support them in the best way? Of course, there are many, many different elements about which pots of money we can use for that. How is this organized? You know that a lot of member states are doing this already. Um, if I can mention Latvia, if I can mention uh, the Netherlands, for example, that give uh, shelter, support, etc. In the end, it's of course important that they re-establish a, a, a business model, you know, that works. Uh, because just living from subsidies, I think, is not the way to to live in the future. But that is that is key. And allow me a last uh, um, point on on the sanctions that we imposed on RT. Uh, I think we are pretty like-minded here on this panel, but many, maybe people who listen in have a, uh, a more, uh, let's say, skeptical view about this. We did not sanction RT because we didn't like what the one or the other journalist was saying. We didn't censor because uh, there was something that we felt was against us. We actually imposed these sanctions for a very simple reason. RT is the arm of the Kremlin. It's an instrument of the Russian uh, security system that they have used to support its illegal action in Ukraine. There is no, it is not a media in the sense of all the criteria that we think media should have about a clear structure, about accountability, about editorial independence. It is controlled, it is financed, it is uh, used as supporting its own strategic objective from the Kremlin. And that's why kind of we have not sanctioned a media and we have not sanctioned an opinion, but we have sanctioned an instrument of the Kremlin that has been used in this war. And I think to make this point so clear is so important uh, because um, sometimes people think there is kind of media freedom is not an important issue in the European Union. It's one of the highest good, goods that we have, one of the highest values. And that makes it difficult to, to address this issue. 
But if I just to resume, if we focus on the behavior of the actors, of the intent to manipulate, of the activities also, if we can expose them, if we can sharpen awareness for that, and if we have also the necessary regulatory tools in, in place, I think we can, we can address the issue quite effectively. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lutz. Uh, I think uh, uh, your words uh, sound also like uh, uh, a conclusion, but I would like to invite uh, also the others uh, to um, say final words as a conclusion, answering this question uh, from a panelist from Omri Price uh, Alliance from uh, Europe. Uh, he asks, how can different actors in the space, media, civil society, governments, platforms, and more, cooperate to disrupt influence operations? Well, uh, the answer by Lutz was networking, uh, building an alliance uh, uh, against disinformation, an ecosystem against uh, disinformation. But I would also like uh, to hear uh, from you, Paolo, uh, what is your take? Final words, yeah. keep it short, please. Yeah, no, very shortly. I would like simply to remind one element that has not been mentioned in our debate, which is the European Media uh, Digital Observatory, uh, the EDMO. Uh, that is a concrete example of a structure that uh, uh, should help uh, uh, networking and has demonstrated exactly during the uh, Ukraine war its ability to uh, bring together uh, fact-checking organizations from all over Europe and to make that work more efficient by not only exchanging content, but also experience technologies and uh, uh, work on the ground. Uh, it is important to recognize this uh, uh, actor, Edmo, in, uh, I think uh, that would be my conclusive sentence, because it is not only about you know, carrying out fact-checking activities, also about carrying out research, accessing data from the platforms for a better understanding of these mechanisms that Lutz was exactly talking about, and to have a better vision about the anatomy of this, this information. What are the actors, the vectors? What are the techniques, the protocols that are used to spread this information? And that it is a good help. And I'm happy to see the progress uh, since our pioneers' days a few years ago. Uh, progress has been made in the meantime, and Edmond has become an actor in this space. Uh, Katarina, what is your take? Uh, how should we, uh, the different actors, cooperate? Not to repeat uh, what was said by Lutz and what was just said by Paolo, um, I think it's very important to also understand our own vulnerabilities and uh, do our own vulnerability mapping in the sense that um, we, are, we have a homework to do and that homework needs to be done at uh, national but also international level. And if we know where our gaps, uh, where we are weak, uh, where we need to build our own resilience, that is based on, you know, the data that just uh, Paolo mentioned, uh, then we can uh, build that network uh, and that cooperation much more stronger. And it is important to, uh, you know, as Lutz mentioned, uh, to realize that we are actually stronger if we cooperate together. And we have a lot of things, a lot of policies, a lot of approaches uh, that we can share between each other and get inspired by each other. 
uh, that will make our uh, societies individually, but as a whole, much more resilient. Yes, and uh, Ross, Ross Burley, your take? Uh, I think what I would say is, is two things. I think we need to be a bit more creative and we need to be a bit more inclusive, um, widen the net. So I think over the last couple of years, we have made some good networks. Uh, I could think of a few uh, that have been pretty successful, but I think generally what we're not thinking about is how we appeal to different audiences, to younger audiences. Are we using the right, not only the right channels, but are we using the right uh, formats? And combining, for example, sort of our open source and, and, and others expertise, uh, Globsex and others uh, academic rigor and, and methodological rigor with, for example, artists, with anime designers, with uh, video content creators, with influencers, all of those different things, I think, need to be kind of taken into consideration a little bit more. And finally, I would say um, a key ally in this in, in terms of uh, networks and creating networks is um, not Europe, uh, is, is elsewhere as well. Latin America, East Asia, uh, uh, you know, the Pacific. Uh, I'm here in Delhi right now. Um, there are amazing fact-checking organizations. There are amazing um, uh, open source um, organizations here. And there are there are allies who want to help us that can share their expertise. And I think we need to embrace that and try and, and, and be more ambitious in the scale of, of, of networks and coalitions that we can form. Uh, dear Julia, I think uh, you probably think that these Westerners uh, are theorizing why we are fighting a war, our husbands, brothers, uh, are on the front, and here we are discussing ideas. Uh, tell us maybe about uh, your feelings. Yeah, yeah, maybe a bit, uh, but but yes, I, I hear it um, a lot. But I have um, yes, it, it uh, everything is uh, correct. Uh, but I I'm afraid that most of uh, uh, European decisions, um, if we are talking about banning some Russian propaganda, for example, or uh, or even weapon, um, were made too late. So I can uh, ask you to not afraid to to make the decision fast uh, to block Russian uh, propagandists. Uh, in Ukraine, we have some very creative Russian journalists who came here to cover war. Uh, as a Canadian uh, journalist, for example, and we realized this when they are uh, already on the front line. So we also should be creative, I can agree, and uh, we have to make content uh, very attractive and uh, understandable, and uh, it's a good point about, uh, about young audience. It, it's very important to engage them, and I think that media literacy is a very important uh, uh, strategic uh, decision also so to, to teach people how to to split facts propaganda truths how which media you can read which which you shouldn't so it's just uh, just a few points from me thank you thank you so much uh, dear Julia uh, I mean stay safe uh, uh, keep up the good work uh, let's be in touch uh, and let us help in in any way uh, we can uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for for this uh, debate. I think, uh, uh, personally, I, I have learned uh, a lot of things. And uh, uh, I think that, uh, of course, the key word uh, remains uh, networking. And uh, 
the bottom line is that uh, this is how democracy works. Thank you for having joined this Euractiv debate. A good day to you.